everyone. Hi, hello. It is me, Allison Rosen. Welcome to another episode of Allison Rosen is your new best friend. Very exciting day for me because I'm sitting here with Rachel Bloom, star of a show you've heard me talk a lot about, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. I'm a huge fan. Thank you. Hello and welcome. Hi. Thank you so much for, for coming here. I love the live audience. <laughs> I know. It's, it's amazing. You fit so many people in yeah, here. Yeah, I know. They're... they're and you Hi, can't even yes, see them. Oh my God, I can't They're even. Hidden. I just hear them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of people feel like it's impractical to do a, stu- uh, a podcast from your dining room with a live audience. But- no, it's like a, it's immersive theater to me. Oh, I'm blowing out the speakers. No, you're good. You're good. Oh, really? You're okay. good. Okay, so for the handful of listeners who potentially are not familiar with Crazy Ex-Girlfriend... And I don't even know if they exist, but I'm just saying, if there are any, let's set this up for them. Can you describe the show? Sure. It's a romantic comedy that shits on romantic comedies. (laughs) It's a musical that shits on musicals, but also loves them both. And it's about a high-powered lawyer who had a great career going on in New York, but he wasn't happy. Yeah. Who runs into an ex and decides to move to West Covina, mm-hmm. which as someone who grew up in Southern California, I, Where? Uh, Orange County. Oh, great. And then I lived in New York for years and then right. I came back. Um, I love, I love that you chose West Covina. It's so, and I feel like I spent, I don't know, like it just, the, the whole like, why would someone choose West Covina of it all makes so much sense to me. Yeah. Like I think I, cause I grew up in, um, in Southern California, and I spent a lot Manhattan of time in Manhattan right? Beach. My grandparents lived in Torrance. I spent a lot of time in inland Southern California. I've spoken about previously a guy that I was desperately in love with in high school did, in fact, live in Glendora, which is the city over from West Covina. And I would um, try to like find excuses to go to Glendora just mm-hmm. to maybe run into him. And so that was really interesting to us. And we wanted to do a show that explored uh, the part of Los Angeles you you don't see. Um, but that's also very like a happy part, just like where the regular people live who aren't movie stars. Right. And in terms of the craziness of your character, I relate so much to it. Um, just because I feel like my past is littered with ridiculous things I did for love or for crushes or it wasn't, it definitely wasn't love. I don't know what it was for. It was for guys and it was for validation. And I've actually on this show, I've quoted this, the lyrics from, is it Love Kernels? Love uh, Nuggets? Yes, yes, Love Kernels. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Just yeah. trying so desperately to convince yourself that the person like asking you a question means they like you. Well, yeah, and it and it makes a lot of sense because I before this season, I, I, we had done a lot of research on love and the science of love and the science of obsession, but I read this book called Unrequited, which is by this amazing author, Lisa Phillips, um, and she... Uh, basically stalked a guy and writes and kind of deconstructs it from there and is like, why did I do this? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we glorify love. It's this kind of pure, holy thing. But actually, if you just look at it from, let's say, a scientific point of view, it's, it's it's, it's rooted in reproduction. And so Helen Fisher, who's a, I think, biological anthropologist, she has a whole TED Talk on love and she says at one point, I might be paraphrasing, but but um, nature, Mother Nature doesn't care if you're happy. Mother Nature wants you to reproduce, mm. and so that that hunger 
that obsession, um, there's there's a term for it called limerence, which is... Yes, I read a book called mm-hmm. Love and Limerence. And oh, I always, yes, I have that one too. I love that. That made so much sense to me. Yes. Um, and what was interesting about that book is it was saying that not everyone experiences limerence. Which is which blows my mind. There, there are a couple people I've met... Limerence is like deep infatuation where all right if yes. I'm remembering correctly. Limerence is, is when you're like when you're talking about a crush, it's basically what love songs are written about. It's I when mean, you get that burst when you're like, I will drive five hours to go see your band play and hope you notice me, even though I'm tired. Because they've done so two things about limerence. The first one is that they've done MRI scans of people currently in love. And they found that the place love is located in your mind, uh, uh, limerences, mm-hmm. like obsession, it's not a want. It's literally a drive, hunger, thirst, sleep. It, it becomes essential to your survival. Um, and the other thing about limerences, it's it's what you think about when you when you think about having a crush. And I've and I've met a couple of people. Who, you know, you describe love or describe that deep sense of infatuation. They're like, yeah, I don't know what, I, I don't know what you're talking about. And there's a part of me that's like, are you human? Are you a sociopath? <laughs> I automatically, honestly, assume they're gay. There are a couple people I've met and I'm just like, oh, in, in my head, I'm like, well, they're gay. Um, that's just kind of my overall solution <laughs> to anything. I'm like, they're gay. But like the same, gay, but not aware of it or, or they're just not telling me. Like it, someone who's like, I've never been. I have never felt that like heartbeat. I will do everything irrational for this person. There's a part of me that's like, maybe not for a woman. I see. Probably for a man. He just like wouldn't admit it, but I could be wrong. Cause there are people who've never experienced it. And mm-hmm. I, it's such a, I feel like those were the people I always got crushes on by the way. Well, well, okay. So this is also interesting is like, and this is more just, um, logic, but you know that we go for, uh, the people we go for because they remind us of like our parents, right? Your parents are like the fundamental or the first experience of right. love you have. And depending on what your parental relationship is, that's what you learn that love is. So if you have a neglectful father, no matter how that actually feels, you learn, okay, well, this is what love feels like mm-hmm. though, because you love your parents no matter what. And I mean, I could go into my own pathologies why I fell for who I fell for, but please do. uh, Well, a lot, but a lot of it is rooted in your kind of these learned patterns that aren't necessarily good for your overall happiness. And there's this type of uh, couples therapy that I've learned about called imago therapy, where you learn that basically your partner is equally suited to heal you and hurt you. Mm -hmm. That you have you have been drawn to them for all of the like primal you know it's the same it's the things that you've learned from your parents that you can also use to heal yourself and in my my husband in my case uh we get along really well because of um we have very similar ways that we are um how shall we say compensating <laughs> and uh we're just both very easygoing with each other and we don't like fight a lot you know um and yeah it's <laughs> have you guys yeah. done imago therapy because it's no. been recommended to me but didn't jeff didn't you produce a podcast where you had a guy who wrote a book about it on the podcast Harville uh, hendrix yeah uh alanis morissette's podcast the fir- i think it was the first episode was um Harville hendrix who i think invented it oh that's really cool i you know i i know friends who've done it and are doing it i haven't um 
I, cause I'm in therapy for just myself and, uh, and I, the, the, the stuff that I'm dealing with, um, it makes anything with my husband like pay. Like, <laughs> <laughs> we have a very, but I mean, my husband, my, my relationship with my husband is, is truly like the most stable relationship I've ever had. It's like, it's the thing that grounds me. It's, it's, um, my husband said something so wonderful in his vows to me, which is also how I feel about him where he's like, uh, cause a lot of my friends and I at the same time all got into meditating and my husband never really did. And he was like, I don't need to meditate. Like you are my meditation. You ground me and keep Aww. me present. And that, that is like how I feel about him, but I also need meditation. <laughs> <laughs> That's so sweet. Yeah. I mean, and it's weird to like brag, like my relationship's so healthy, but I, um, it's one of those things where I think I also just lucked out. I found someone who wanted to be easygoing in the same ways I wanted to be. And we both in the past had been in relationships that really pushed our buttons in bad ways. Mm-hmm. Um, do you find, cause when I watch crazy ex-girlfriend, I love, I love it for so many different reasons, but I do relate like a, a younger version of me I see in, um, in your character. Do you find that there's something universal about her? I mean, I think so. I mean, all you can do, I think anyone can do as a writer is write to what feels true to them and write, write from experience. Um, she is me at my worst. She's me at my most depressed, my most anxious, taken up even a couple notches Mm -hmm. because I always was pursuing what I loved. Like I always knew I wanted to, be a writer or an actor and luckily had parents unlike Rebecca's who really encouraged that, which is, um, which is, I feel like the, the signs of like a West coast Jew versus an East coast Jew. Like I never, my father comes from a family of only doctors and lawyers and there was never, ever pressure for me to be either, which is quite remarkable. My mm-hmm. husband's from long Island and really <laughs> experienced the opposite. He's a writer as well. Right? He is. And he writes for my show. Um, what was I saying? You were saying that she is right. You so she's me. My, she's 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 me. And if same with my co-creator, she is um a mix of 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 me and Aline, kind of at our most unenlightened. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, yeah. I was going to ask: In what ways are you different, and in what ways are you the same? Are there ways? Like, are there things she does that you would never have done? Oh God! I mean, I think that um, I never had the money when I was you know, when I was like that to like spend $10,000, but I would, but I, I still have a lot of problems getting a sense of, um, how much money to save and how much money to spend. I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm not great with that. I'm trying to think of like anything she's done. I mean, so much of what she's done is, is, is stuff I wouldn't do. I would never have sex with another guy (laughs) on, on a date with someone else. I would maybe be turned off and like be, be cold, but I wouldn't do that. Um, I wouldn't break into someone's house to intercept a text message. <laughs> I would try to think of like a really good excuse. Um, and so it's, but it's all emotionally things that I've wanted to do or things that I would want to do, but have stopped myself. From doing. Yes. Yes. Um, so how did you get from the person who was a little more like that to the person that you are now? Well, Hmm. I think it's star. I think really, uh, when I graduated college, because I was at NYU, yeah, because I was already dating my boyfriend, who's now my husband. When I graduated college, and he, so he was first of all a 
a real, you know, the, the show says like love can't solve your problems, but a healthy relationship based on mutual trust and being on the same page can um, give you something to aspire to. And I started uh, dating my now husband senior year of college. We'd been friends for a couple years before that. And I felt like that I wasn't there yet. I still had the same problems, still had problems with sleep and and anxiety and, and the same worries. But I was like, oh, here's an example of someone who's who's kind of figured this out. And so it was something to kind of look up to and aspire to. Um, and he's five years older and I was, you know, looking, I was just out of college and he was already like a working uh, TV and film writer. So there was a general like looking up to him. Um, then I graduated from college and I realized for the first time no one was going to care if I failed. It wasn't like I was automatically enrolled in classes. I would get a grade. Someone would be like, you were late today. What's wrong? If I never did theater or writing or anything to do with the arts again, no one would care. Was that liberating or or depressing uh, or neither? Depressing and horrifying, but it kicked my ass to finally take responsibility because I was in this phase of like biting off more than I could chew in college. I was getting um, really bad sleep. I, I, there were so many issues I did not address. And so I started to slowly, um, by kind of, you know, the way that I'd been interpreting spirituality just to make a slight left turn. I'd interpreted my own spirituality as kind of this like vague agnosticism, which is like, well, even if I mess up, it's okay because everything happens for a reason. And I realized I'd been using that as a cushion to be sometimes an irresponsible asshole. Mm -hmm. And once I dropped that, um, I was like, wait a second, what if there's no such thing as fate? Just like for, for the, for, for an exercise for my own life, not like saying what I believe universally or even for other people. Like what if for myself, I, 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 I take out that idea of a cushion and my life is just my life. And if I fuck up, I just fuck up. There's no like meant to be with it. Um, cause there was something about that that just reeked of privilege. Like, well, of course everything's meant to be for you. You're going to art school in New York city. Like what? Of course everything's meant to be like everything feels ultimately you are never at least if you unless you really fuck up you're never going to end up on the streets homeless and starving you're just mm -hmm. not and so there's only so low you can fall so anyway i feel like that combined with graduating from college really started to uh make me fully take responsibility for my actions and then a couple years ago when aline and i were pitching crazy ex-girlfriend i started to get very bad insomnia while we were pitching and it was kind of uh, a concentrated version of all of the issue issues I'd had and never really addressed, which is like looping thoughts, putting pressure on myself, mm. um, worrying about the looping thoughts themselves. And it, and it kind of also stemmed back to um, it, this, what I think now was OCD when I was um, like 11 or 12. It's a whole thing. Anyway, long story short, uh, right in the middle of this kind of anxiety period, I was getting ready to write the pilot for Showtime. And then I got engaged. Didn't I didn't see it coming. My husband mm -hmm. proposed. And I was like, okay, so this year I'm either going to die from anxiety over all of the things I could fuck up or I have to deal with this. And I got, for the first time, like a psychiatrist and I learned about medit meditating and that really 
that year really changed me as a person. And you went on Prozac, right? I did. Because you mentioned in, in your, you wrote a great article about this period of your, of your life yeah. for Glamour, right? Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. That You had said that you had had this, um, this idea that antidepressants numb you out. Yes. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm losing my voice. Hang no. on one second. Been and, there. Um, I found my voice, you guys. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have never been on antidepressants. I also, that has always been my fear as well, that like you just, it just mutes the colors or something. You know, I think that when you get a responsible psychiatrist, I think there are a lot of psychiatrists and we decided that this was kind of Rebecca Bunch's deal in New York who just kind of throw pills at you. Um, They call it the like executive special and they just, (laughs) they just kind of, I mean, I know someone, a friend of a friend who's just completely zonked on Adderall. Just complete. I mean, she's completely zonked in Adderall, and and I went to this guy, um, and he was like, "Well, no. If you if you work on um, kind of your thought process uh, taken in conjunction with medicine, if you do it right, it can mm-hmm. be great." And I just really, my psychiatrist is he's like just amazing. He's one of the best in his field. How did um, you find him? I went on psychology today and I found, I remember what happened. I was, it was, uh, it was March of 2015. I had to get up early the next day for a commercial and my sleep anxiety had taken the form of like, every time I had to sleep before something important, I was like, what if I don't sleep? Then then what if I never sleep again? Mm. It was this, it was this very specific anxiety. And that night I wrote up an essay that was like, here is what I'm going to do. It was like a message to my future psychiatrist, a, a history of my sleep anxiety. <laughs> and the next day I went on psychology today and I just looked up um, people who, who specialize, specialize in sleep disorders and anxiety. And I found this guy, highly recommended. And the second I met him, I, I knew it was like meant to be. He's awesome. Um, something that I remember you saying in that essay was that part of the fear was that everything was Tell me if I'm right. Like mm-hmm. everything was resting on you. Yes. Like you have to, you know, there's all this stuff that you have to do to make happen and you you alone can make it happen or you alone can fuck it up. Yes. And I'm wondering, was that something that you had, have you, had you always felt that in your life or was that sort of a result of, the, um, or related to this new way of thinking of like, Maybe everything doesn't happen for a reason. Maybe it is up to me to sort of chart the course of things. I um, I think despite the fact I'd, I, I, I think I, my tendency was to be black and white kind of my whole life. You know, like everything's resting on me. I am the best person. I am a garbage person. Mm. And this stems back to, um, I mean, so many things that like you'd need three hours to get into, <laughs> but you know, my family and the way I saw myself. And, um, I mean, that's a really good point. Like suddenly I, I you know, I think for, for a couple of years I became a very, very, very hardcore atheist because what had you been before agnostic, just vaguely agnostic because I like making big choices and taking big swings and the sudden, um, saying to myself, what if there's no cushion felt like, that's atheism mm-hmm. to me. Um, and and now it's taken me a couple of years. And now what I do is I kind of call myself a practical atheist, um, universal agnostic, because like as far as the universe and everything with that, that it's, I would never claim to know. And then I'm completely open to everything. And I think anyone who 
is a fan of science and aspires to have a scientific mind should never claim to definitively know everything. Uh, but I say practical atheist just because like that's how I have to live my life. That I am my best self when I live my life thinking there is nothing watching. It is up to me to be a good person. And for whatever reason, that resonates with me. It makes me be a better person way more than the idea of someone looking down on me. Um, that idea of unconditional forgiveness from an outside entity, it, it, I don't know. It just let me off the hook. That's why I like spirituality is such a, a personal mm-hmm. thing. But for many, but for a while, I definitely erred on the side of being one of those atheists who was like, blah, blah, blah. and also like, <laughs> Um, along with atheism comes skepticism, you know, skeptical of ghost stories, alien stories, juice cleanses, like you name it. It's, it's all of the stuff that kind of feels like up for debate or woo, 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 woo. Right. And, and that's a, a, a very direct reaction to when I was a kid, I believed in all that stuff. I would rely on my horoscope. I remember there was a website where you could see your biorhythms. Mm-hmm. I forget what that even was, but I was like always checking my biorhythms and like comparing it to a crushes <laughs> and being like, okay, well, so our biorhythms are like pretty opposite around prom. Um, I completely believed in ghosts. There was a while in middle school where I was like, should I be a Wiccan? So again, like these black and white things, I am now just learning to embrace both sides of myself. Mm-hmm. And you said that when you did feel like there was that cushion, it allowed you to be kind of an asshole mm-hmm. in what way? just selfish um yeah selfish i was a horrible roommate really horrible roommate so messy partially because i was depressed and in my own head but really clothes all over the floor um i would like and i was so in my own head i would like turn off the light when my roommate was still in there i would leave food everywhere really truly disgusting and i'm still not the neatest person (laughs) but i've gotten infinitely better um just the way I broke up with people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just, I did some really, really selfish things when I would kind of follow my heart impulsively with love. I mean, I said I would never fuck another guy on a date with someone, but like the way I broke up with this one dude in high school because I was into someone else was like in the hallway. I was like, hey, so like, just to be clear, we're broken up, right? And he was like, uh, and I was like, okay, cool. I just wanted to make sure. <laughs> like that's essentially how I broke up with him, which is horrible. But I told myself, well, it's for love and it's for true love. And I was so kind of selfish and in my own head. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that you had OCD at 11 and 12. Yeah. What happened then? Well, so what happened, it all stemmed from, oh, I'm trying to remember if I've told this. Oh, no, I told this story on my friend's podcast, but I haven't told the story yet. So there was a one time, I was a weird kid. And there was like one time... I was, this is like so, this used to be, by the way, like the story I feared telling people the most. So there was one time I was wiping from pooping. I was 11 or 12. And I was like, what would my poo taste like? I was like 10. <laughs> oh, no, I'm sorry. I was like, I was like nine. I was nine. And I'm I like, still curious about that. And by I like the way. lightly, like semi, but not really. Like I like put my hand like adjacent on the toilet paper and like put it up to my tongue and then instantly was horrified. And I don't even think I like touched it. I was just like, it's just like a weird little kid thing. Yeah. Like little, like kids eat ants and stuff. They just do weird, gross shit. Mm-hmm. But then I instantly was like so ashamed and like felt like I need to tell my parents what I just did. And I told them and they were like, what the, f- what? Why would you, what? That's hard. What? And 
I told them and then it, but it didn't help. And I was instantly consumed with guilt for like everything else I'd ever done. Like one time I had an impure thought. I wasn't raised in a religious family. I don't know where this came from. Mm -hmm. I think it was the combination of like little kid weirdness mixed with like puberty probably. Yeah. Cause suddenly like masturbating and having all these feelings. And so there was a period of three years where like I would, uh, do something my mind would lock on it, be like, that's a guilty thought. It would consume me until I like purged the thought by telling my parents. And this cycle just continued, 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 and it never got better. Purging the thought helped for two minutes, and then my mind would just find something else to latch on to. And then it went away when I was like 13, 14, probably like when I left puberty. Like you can kind of see the hormone levels right. with that. But it came back in a different way with the whole sleep anxiety thing where it's like these dark looping thoughts. And the way that I described it to my psychiatrist was it feels like the anxiety attacks everything I love mm. where it's like, I won't ever sleep again and I'm going to fuck this up. What if I do this? And my, and what, what if I do this? And what if I'm feeling, um, what if I'm feeling an anxious thought around my husband? And then what if the anxious thoughts just like never go away around my husband? Like it becomes anxiety about anxiety. Right. And the way that I learned to deal with it was psychiatry and, and really practicing a form of cognitive behavioral therapy, which is essentially learning to isolate what thoughts you should indulge and then what thoughts are just false. And it happened, you know, kind of as an overanalytical person, uh, what I'm, what you do when you're kind of, um, getting, you're indulging in looping thoughts is you're telling your body there's a lion in the bushes. But there isn't. You've created. The, there's no. There's nothing there. And it can feel irresponsible to not explore each thought. Yes. Yes. Ex exactly. It's like you're putting yourself in danger. Like, oh no, I have to it, explore that. It feels like I forgot to turn the stove off, or I never had that really OCD like that. But it feels like I'm forgetting something, mm -hmm. and it's taken. Uh, the the act of like an anxious thought because the anxious thoughts come in whenever like there's a high pressure situation or like if I'm on vacation and getting weird sleep or if it can come on in all these ways and the act of ignoring it, it feels like going to the gym and building up muscle. Mm -hmm. And, but when I do it, the way it feels is like I'm balancing on the side of a pool. And if I even dip my toe in the water, I will fall in. Mm -hmm. And so it's like been a real, it's, you know, it goes against every instinct of mine to like ignore an anxious thought, but I've gradually learned, okay, well, what, what are thoughts that are actually worth thinking and what are thoughts that are actually just don't help anybody? And how have you learned to tell the difference? Or how I've learned what, what type of thought it, anything that's like catastrophizing, you know, mm -hmm. you know it's going to be a catastrophe where it's like, um, I'm going to, I'm not going to sleep and everyone's going to hate me. And it's like, okay, well, no, First of all, worrying about not sleeping doesn't help you sleep. So there's nothing you can do. There's also a, a giving up control to all this, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's like, well, because because there's a there's a sense of like, by being anxious, I'm actively doing something. Yes. Like I remember um, a couple days before I got married, I was waiting to hear if our pilot got picked up with Showtime. And I, uh, I was on like a little um, spa trip with my uh, maid of honor, Nicole, and like, I spent the whole night just like worrying about it. And I remember she was, she was like, you need to stop worrying. And I was like, I honestly feel like the thought um, deserves this amount of worrying. 
But what it really was was maintaining some semblance of control because it was an, in actuality I had no control over where they pick up my show. But worrying about it makes me feel like I have control. Right. And so it's about being comfortable relinquishing control, which is hard for me and an anxious person. Um, and then it's just, it's just now it's like the, anytime that it's a catastrophe, it's like, okay, you know, logically, you know, this isn't true. Life doesn't work like that. You're thinking, what story are you telling yourself? You know, cause your life is kind of your self image is made up. Like what story are you telling yourself? And if you're telling yourself the story of like, I'm going to fail and everyone's going to hate me, but nothing else in your life evidence wise has mm. like, uh, works with that story. You learn to like kind of scientifically weigh the evidence of how you actually are versus like what you fear. Right. Have you experienced trauma in your life? Yes. And it's hard because I, uh, I, it's, I, I don't want to throw anyone under the bus. Okay. So, but let's just say, uh, yes. Uh, and I, um, I, uh, I've had, a you know, anxiety and depression since I was a kid and to put it diplomatically, uh, it runs in my family. Anxiety and depression or tr- trauma? Uh, anxiety and depression. Okay. Uh, and, 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 and mental illness runs in my family. Yeah. I mean, trauma is, is, um, uh, now it seems like I, I have not, I have had the good fortune to have never been sexually assaulted. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just get that out there. Right. I am not the one in four women who's been in any way sexually assaulted. Um, but there have been just like, it's it's like a, it's a thing. Well, Rebecca, now I want to be careful that I'm not like no. trying to out what you're, what you're trying not to reveal. Rebecca yeah, no, no, has no, no, experienced no. And family and I'll tell trauma. You, I'll tell you off mic. Okay. It's just like the type of thing where I'm so open about myself. Here's, here's let me put it this way. I am very open about myself. Very open. I will tell you anything you want to know about me. When it comes to someone else and um, potentially like talking about the secrets in life of like someone else, I don't want to necessarily do that. Mm -hmm. Have you, have you, see that's, that's smart and respectful and I think I, because I am very open probably to a fault and I have kind of gotten in trouble with people yeah. in my family in the past. Yeah. Have you gotten in trouble before? Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, my uh, uh, <laughs> my mom found uh, like my uh, free, my, my, my mother and I have had, um, have not always had, uh, we, we, we have a, um, a relationship full of ups and downs mm-hmm. and I think she would agree with that if she were here and she once found my um my internet journal where i just like blasted her on the internet when i was like 16 and it it was a real it was real it was a real problem what happened she was very upset and very hurt and um were you doing live journal this free open diary okay but yeah so i mean it's 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 the type of thing where like talking about my friends talking about my family with whom I've had problems. I just don't want to like, um, it hasn't, it hasn't been like trauma. So let me, let me put it this way. Any trauma I've undergone has not been trauma severe enough where I am, um, uh, 
not going to the police with a crime. It's not. It's not that. <laughs> right. No. It's, it's not that stuff that traumatized you. It's stuff that I mean. I think. I think everyone has like trauma. I mean. I. I gave it almost like more weight then because now it's like what the fuck happened i i wasn't i didn't witness anyone get murdered i'm not i'm not hiding anything from the police there is nothing that has happened to me that is like a crime that i'm it's it's um it's subtler than that Mm -hmm. um that makes sense yeah yeah i mean it's funny because i think about like you know what, what trauma i've undergone or whatever um or the things that are hard in my life and then i compare my life to like people who've lived through wars and i mean my husband's grandparents three out of four of them are holocaust survivors you know and so but you can only it doesn't negate someone else's trauma doesn't necessarily negate yours right um but yeah so um i saw a clip from a show that by the time this airs will have aired where you were talking about how you were like the weird kid in, I think, middle school. Yeah. I it was middle or grammar school. But um, both. But that talent can transcend that. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? About sort of like what what that period of your life was like? Sure. Um, well, what was it like? I was just, uh, I was into weird shit that kids who grew up in Southern California weren't into. Like, old musicals i would only watch the tv shows my parents watched in a really great way like it gave me great taste in television um and i don't know i just kind of like isolate i don't know i i just i always felt like there was like a slight disconnect between me and the other kids and um Ugh, there's so many like levels of it, but but at the end of the day, well, I, I grew up in Orange County, which I imagine is sort of similar to yeah. growing up in Manhattan Beach. It's like a, I don't know what Manhattan Beach was like, but I could imagine it being a very homogenous, blonde, athletic place. Yes, <laughs> yes, it's that where it's like you're talking about rent, and people are just like, "What?" Because <laughs> it's so, it's happy. I, I have friends who've moved from New York to LA who do improv here, and. They uh, they talk about how audiences here are less. They, they like dark humor a little less. I don't know if I've actually necessarily noticed that, but it's an observation of 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 some comedians I know. And I wonder if there is something to um, like the way that I felt this kind of like dark Woody Allen esque like mm-hmm. way of thinking. I would have been right at home on the East Coast, but here it's sunny. It's beautiful. What's what's your problem? Why are you sad? You know, like there almost isn't like a word. For sadness? Right. Yeah, it... When I first moved back after college, I was like, these people are so shallow, they exist. Like, it's on the level of clothing. It's it's not even skin deep. Yeah. <laughs> They're above skin deep. Um, whereas I, in college especially, really like to analyze the hell out of everything and talk about every single different level and just angst and existentialism and just every, you know, I'm, I'm actually a sunnier person now and I'm really not that sunny, but um, I know what you mean. There's this, this pressure to be happy. Yes. Yes. There's a, there is a, um, it's a pressure to be happy and to fit in and just like be normal. That's what it is. It's just like be normal. Stop not being normal. Why? And then it was like, why don't you know the secret trick to being normal mm-hmm. that everyone knows? But then the talent earns it all, which is why for so many years I put so much stock in like, I need to be talented, which is why like not being the best was terrifying to me because it's like, well, I don't fit in. 
I don't know if I'm ever going to have like a healthy romantic relationship, but at least I'm getting the leads in the plays. And then when I get to school and a lot of other people are more talented, it's like, well, then who, who the fuck am I? What was it all for? Which, what was being weird for? NYU. Okay. There well, was a little bit of that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, but I also heard you mention, I think on um, Rona and Beverly, maybe that when you got to high school, all of a sudden being into drama was cool. Mm-hmm. It switched. And it started to switch a little bit in middle school. There was this great drama teacher. His name's Mr. Amberg. Um, shout out to him. He uh, <laughs> he started like a Shakespeare unit for the seventh graders where like three times a year, these seventh graders would put on a Shakespeare play and it just like became cool. And then my when I got into eighth grade, he started a musical theater class and we did Guys and Dolls. And that's like what kind of turned it all around. Um, where were you, Where were you first exposed to musical theater? My mom was a music major, and so she'd play piano constantly. And then my grandpa was an amateur uh, theater director and like actor and stand-up comic. And so, and when my mom was growing up, he would make her play piano while he would sing at like mm-hmm. parties. Uh, he was not a singer, um, <laughs> but my mom was born with perfect pitch. Uh, luck, you know, lucky for him. So, I just started learning show tunes really, really young. And I remember my grandparents took me to see Guys and Dolls, and that was really important. Mm-hmm. And then I just kind of took that love and ran with it because it felt like escapist. Right. So initially, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend um, was for Showtime, right? Yeah. And then, but now it's on CW. So what what happened? Sure. We made a pile for Showtime. Uh, Actually, yeah. sorry. Let's step back even a little sure. bit further. So um, your co-creator approached you with the idea right well yeah so i get an email one day i just put out my first album along with three new music videos i've been doing music videos for a while sorry taking a sip um and so i've put out this new album i've put up some new music videos and i get an email saying uh aline brosh mckenna would like to meet with you to discuss a musical television show and i think my agent was like this is a really big deal bloom and Were I, you out here? I was out here. Yeah, I've, I've been. I would. I've been out here for a couple of years. And mm-hmm. I looked her up, and I was like, "Oh my god, she wrote the Devil Wears Prada." <laughs> oh, she's like, she's a big a big deal. But I'd already pitched two musical uh, television shows that no one had given a fuck about, and so I was like, "All right, this is probably nothing." Um, and I think I was also doing that to trick myself to be calm. Mm-hmm. And we we had a general meeting at CBS because she called CBS and was like, "Set me up on." you know, a kind of blind date with this girl. We instantly like hit it off. And she, in the moment was like, you know, I've had an idea because she wanted to do a musical theater, a musical television show mm-hmm. with me. And she's like, I've had an idea for a, sh- for a movie called Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, but what about the show? And we were instantly like, oh yeah. And it, and then we developed it for a couple months before pitching. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then you pitched to Showtime. We pitched to eight networks. And the networks that wanted to buy it were uh, Showtime, FX, and MTV. Was it disappointing when? Because now I'm remembering. I think in your in your article in Glamour, you talked about being rejected. Yeah, in some places. And how was that? Depends on the, it depends or? on the place. Um, I mean, definitely Showtime and FX were like up up there. I mean, uh, networks have such specific things they they want but you know it was just a pitch and, I, and i'd also pitch and gotten rejected so many times yeah. before so the fact that anyone wanted to buy it i mean fx was the first one that like kind of said we want it in the room and it was such a surreal 
experience that had never happened to me before because I'd never, I'd never uh, really sold a pitch. Right. So we wrote the pilot. Um, Showtime like loved it the whole way. It became clearer they wanted to make it. Uh, we shot the pilot like kind of a year after we pitched it. Um, the pilot came out amazingly, and then something happened, which I don't know their priorities changed or whatever and showtime passed. And the thing that hurt was like, so we have this great pilot that is this beautiful big budget pilot, you know, hundreds of dancers in the scene. I know it's good. And then we send that to all these networks and including ones that wanted to buy it before. And then we get rid of Now that's what hurt. Did they give, do they give a reason? Some do. Um, I'm trying to think of any the only reason we got from one place um was like we thought it would be edgier which is weird because in the pilot in the original greg rebecca scene rebecca gives greg a hand job and then blows him <laughs> so i, I don't feel like the whole thing is edgy so here's the thing here's what i ultimately think and i and and maybe maybe what showtime picked up on was Yes, the show has dark, edgy things, but ultimately there is an optimism because the show's about the pursuit of happiness. Mm -hmm. And so there is something even about the pilot that feels a little, in a great way, like mainstream or network TV about it mm -hmm. because it's it's hopeful. And it ultimately, I think there is this thing in cable now, just a little bit, um, where it's like, oh, it's cool that everyone's a piece of shit. And <laughs> right, they're like all so fucking, they're all so, everyone's so mean to each other. Oh, and they're all like fucking and choking each other and being like, you're a piece of garbage as I fuck you. And granted, it's not like we don't have that. Um, but, but I know what you mean, though. There's but, but such a sweetness like, about the we, show. We, we don't believe any of our characters are like, if they found the right thing, it would fix them. Mm -hmm. We don't, we don't, and maybe this is just what we, what Alina and I believe about humanity. Like, I don't fundamentally believe anyone is like truly, truly, truly broken unless they're like Trump. Um, <laughs> I, I do actually think he's, he's quite broken. Not that yeah. he's like evil. I don't think he's evil. I don't think any, no one thinks they're the villain of their own story to quote myself. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I think that everyone is, if you find what makes you happy and get to the nitty gritty of like, what, who are you really deep, deep down, there's potential for redemption and happiness. And that's not a really like cool cable TV thing to say, you know, there's something that feels very uncool about that and something very earnest. Mm -hmm. And whenever I got, when I got nominated for the Golden Globe the first time, but also this year, I'm talking to these reporters who were like so where, where were you when you heard the news were you asleep and it's like fuck no i was watching the announcements streaming <laughs> just like everybody else and i it's like so the right. idea of playing things cool and being insincere um it's just never been my my jam i'm really bad at like insulting people mm -hmm. like my first writing staff i was on like the people who were really good at like zingers and I just would be like, well, you're a, a poopy booger head. Like I just would freeze up. I'm not good at, uh, I'm just not good at that. Conflict? Are you not good at conflict? Or what is your relationship to conflict? Uh, I'm scared of it. I'm scared of conflict. I definitely have the girl thing of being afraid of being a bitch, afraid of stepping on toes. Um, 
uh, I don't like the idea. I, I still have never been cool with the fact that there will be people out there who don't like me. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to get over that. Um, but that goes with like relinquishing control. It's a it's a work in progress. Yeah. Um. So given that you are you don't want to come across as a bitch and you want people to like you, how does that work with also having your own show? Yeah. Well, my psychiatrist and I had a long talk about this. <laughs> um. You know. It, I don't know. I think it's going well. I mean, when I want something, when I have a definitive opinion, I'm not, I don't know, anything to do with the music videos, I'm suddenly not, anything to do with the creative, I'm suddenly not afraid of being a bitch. It's more like a, man, a management thing or it's mm-hmm. like that person, well, I don't know. I, I'm trying to think of an example. It's, it, it, it's case specific. Well, because I went through... Um a process of pitching something, which was a huge, it's kind of still going on, but it has been a huge learning experience because my instinct at the beginning was to defer to people who know better mm-hmm. and just be like, yeah, sure, whatever that sounds, you know, and just really like, I really kind of rolled over. I don't know why. I think because it was tempting to say, you guys know better than me. Yeah. And if I had it to do over again, I wouldn't, I would have to use, uh, hokey language like shown up for myself more probably and and not just been like sure whatever yeah um because actually deep down i do know stuff i just didn't trust myself you know i never i this show's actually been a really smooth process and i'm not to not to brag but um do i have heard repeatedly that like from people who who are guest stars on our set or, or day play on our set that like Ours is one of the happier sets people have ever been on. And I'm really, and, and my experience is that, I mean, I, I could not love the crew and my, um, my co-star, like everyone else who's on the show more. We, we really are, we really are a family. Um, and so I've, it's actually been a pretty, it's like, there's these little things where I'm like afraid if I come off Mm -hmm. bitchy. Um, but it really, it's just like when I'm telling someone what I want. And so it might be like, I'll tell them what I want, but then be like, ugh. And then try to like soften it by being like, oh, that's what I want. Like do a funny voice. <laughs> is Do you always know what you want? Because a big area I struggle in is when something is presented to me and it's not what I want and I'm having, I know that I don't love it, but I can't figure out what it is I want. So I'm tempted to just go, yeah, that'll work. Because I tell myself, oh, you're just, you're just wanting too much. Mm. Like, do you usually have a, a clear vision of what it is you want? I do. And the other thing is I, my co-creator is, is an incredibly confident, strong person. And so I have learned from her any sort of kind of wishy-washy giving in to my fear of being a bitchness that I had before the show. I've actually, um, I, I've, I have learned from her to like, no, your opinions matter. Like, we're, we're partners in creating this show and, and it only helps people to tell them what you want. Mm-hmm. That's, that's kind of, that's the rub. It's like no one appreciates that person who isn't being direct. That's what I've learned. I mean, the, you know, um, this book that I read on Requited, uh, talks a lot about how, I'm just going to write that down. Yeah, it's really good. <laughs> talks a lot about how society gives every form of encouragement to the pursuer. Mm-hmm. Uh, every template, they're always the hero of every story. It's kind of this idea of the gallant knight, you know, towards his princess. But there's never any template for the rejector. 
how do you reject someone? Really what we learn from pop culture is when you reject someone, it, you're the bad guy, right? The rejector is always the bad mm-hmm. guy who doesn't love the person that they should love. And so we're never taught how to reject people. So we're taught to be indirect. We're taught to just kind of not call people back and let it fade away and hope yeah. that it's mutual. And the only piece of rejection I, I advice I ever got was from my father who, I mean, I remember I was in high school, I must've been 14, 15. And he said, if you do not reciprocate a boy's affection, the nicest thing you can do is to tell him as soon as possible. Do not let him think. Do not, do not let him, lead him to believe anything otherwise. Because the, it is just the most humane thing to tell them I do not like you because they can move on. That's such good advice. And I think it was from my dad's personal experience of like, you know, dating women who let him on. And, and, and it was great advice that I... It took me a long time to, because it is really hard to reject someone. Well, yeah. And I think you think at the time, just leaving it with a question mark is somehow more humane yes. than actually dashing their hopes. And it's, but and it's, it's not, for, it's, because I've been on the other side now. Same. And yeah. it's, it's, it's bad. It's really horrible. Yeah. Yeah. So let's take some questions that people sent in on Twitter. But first, I want to say, if you guys are going to buy something on Amazon, which you are because they have everything, click through the banner on my website, alisonrosen.com. It doesn't cost you anything extra, but it helps out the show. Thank you so much for your Amazon support. Also, check us out on Patreon. Patreon um, is sort of like Kickstarter, but you can support artists and podcasts on an ongoing monthly basis. And there's different reward levels. You can get extra bonus episodes every month. There's an exclusive live video stream. There's an official fan club level where you get merchandise in the mail, all sorts of cool stuff. So go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Allison Rosen. Okay, let's take questions. When we ask, they send them in. They're wondering how you have been. So thanks so much for answering these questions from our fans. Okay, Lawrence would like to know, what's her favorite musical number, stage or screen? Wow. The first thing that comes to mind is one of my, I think my favorite screen musical number is, this is going to sound so uh, out of the left field, but the way that they filmed Master of the House in the recently Ms. movie, I oh, think yeah. is masterful. It's so good and subtle and the the perfect example of how of how you take something that was on stage and and translate it to film and and do something with film that you literally couldn't do on stage. You can't do those close-ups of hands pickpocketing. And so I that just comes to mind as like what an amazingly done musical number. Um uh I mean I saw Hamilton and I had memorized the entire soundtrack and I think it's a testament to how good the direction is that and how good the show is that like it didn't affect me loving the show and the show surprising me and being spontaneous. My husband and I are both kind of obsessed. I'm, I'm newly obsessed with it. He's been obsessed with it for a while and neither of us have seen it. It's just based on listening to the music. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really, really, um, masterfully done. I mean, you kind of saw at the Tonys, they did the world turned upside down and Mm -hmm. like, there's a simplicity to how that show is, um, stage and also the costume and also the set design. Um, that because you don't need all that the music is already so the production of the music is already so good and I just love I like the staging of it a lot did you or do you have Broadway aspirations yeah 
Absolutely. Did and do. When you went to you went to Tisch School of the Arts at NYU. Yes, Tisch School of the Arts, yes. <laughs> well, what did you think was going to be your career on the other side of it? I don't know if I thought, but I hoped that I would I would graduate from Tisch and, and be on Broadway. And mm. then I kind of fell in love with uh, comedy writing. Is But admittedly, like a haven from like not being the most talented. We're like, well, okay, so I can write my own stuff. It was a little bit of a, um, a Heidi Hole maneuver. But... I also fell in love with sketch comedy writing and there was a freedom to it because um, I had no expectations for myself in it. And you made music video, like really funny music videos mm-hmm. that um, went onto YouTube and then went viral, right? Yeah. I m- imagine that's how your co-creator found you yes. from those. Um, where did the idea to do those, like that must have been a whole production to do the videos. Where did you get that idea and how did you make that happen? By the way, I am going to ask more Twitter questions, but these are my own questions now. Um, Yeah, so long story short, I graduated from college. I was a musical theater major, also did experimental theater, also uh, directed my school sketch comedy group. And so I wanted to be my own. I wanted to do what others were doing around me um, because I had a lot of friends affiliated with the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater in New York, and a lot of people were kind of building their own comedy brands online and at the theater. And it's like, I'm a writer-performer, and so I wanted to do that. I had taken a musical theater writing class through NYU graduate musical theater writing. And so I um, I started to write this UCB show where I wrote a comedy song about the movie Space Jam. And I <laughs> played the song for my then boyfriend, now husband. And he was like, this is so special. This is unique. No one else is doing this. And I was like, oh, you're right. And I decided to lean into it and made this music video, Fuck Mary Bradbury. And that went super viral. And then like, just kind of took it from there. Musical comedy just became the thing that felt special and right and the thing that I love doing the most. Mm-hmm. Okay. The Lionel King says, does, uh, Rachel does stuff, that's your Twitter handle, yeah. get a lot of love from Filipino people on the street or in hospitals? A lot of us are nurses. Hilarious. Um, hospitals, no. On the street, yes, especially around Southern California. Uh, the way that I feel around Filipino people now is honestly the same type of like um, comfort or tribalism that I get from Jewish people. Mm-hmm. There's a like, you're one of us and it's really... Your love interest in the show is Filipino. Yes, my love interest that. in the yeah. show is Filipino and um, we've done, I mean, we show his family, we lean to the fact he's Filipino. There's a whole episode about Filipino Thanksgiving that was <laughs> written and spearheaded by Rene Goubet who also plays uh, the fan favorite character, Father Bra, who is Filipino and from Southern California. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of... Um, get some of the credit for the Philos, the Filipino, the Filipino specifics that like we would not know if it were not for Renee uh, being on staff. The decision to make him Asian. Yeah. Um, was that yours or was that your co-creator? It was, it was a, uh, my co-creator first had the idea and I was like, yes, we were talking about it. And she's like, I feel like Josh is Asian. And I was <laughs> like, yeah. Um, initially he was Chinese though, right? Yeah. We said Josh Chang. I mean, we, we, we left it open. Um, and then when we hired Vinny, we were like, okay, well, Vinny was like, well, Chang is, is Chinese, but, but Chan is a Filipino Chinese name. And so that's what we did. Um, okay. Deanna says, does she enjoy watching herself on TV or feel critical of her performance at times? You know, it's hard because unlike most actors, I am sitting in the editing room. And so when I watch an episode... I'm watching it for so much more than my own performance. I'm watching it for, I, I also, I also spearhead a lot of the edits on the music videos. That's like my editing jam. And so Mm -hmm. like 
when I watch the episode, I'm kind of watching it for, I'm watching it for the performances, but because I was on set for those, I'm like, if I know we have a better take of something or if like, I'm very, um, unemotional when it comes to my performance. I will openly be like, oh, I garbled that word. I really fucked up. We need to put in another take. Uh, or sometimes I'll be like, oh, this actress, she keeps fucking up this line. It's driving me fucking crazy. <laughs> uh, there's something very impersonal about it. Um, and so I'm, I'm just watching for so many other things and I'm so used to seeing myself because I see the cuts of these episodes so many times. I'm just used to it. Do you, are you ever unable to be purely objective when watching yourself? And was that a learned Mm. thing? Good question. I think the only thing is honestly with like um, appearance. Uh, uh, I, um, I got a mole removed on my lip when I was like 11 and my, my mouth is like ever so slightly lopsided. I have never noticed this. No, no one has. It's only me. <laughs> it's only me. And I bring it up and I should shut up about it. So I noticed that, but it never affects like my decision on a take. It just, I could tell like, um, and then, and then there will be some, but like, do you favor a side because of no, it? No, 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 no. There's nothing. No, there's nothing really that I. I mean, there was one shot in the, th- I remember the third episode of the first season where like I straight up had a muffin top <laughs> and I was like, can we go to a closer angle? Not because I don't want a muffin top, but I want the muffin top to be on my own terms. And <laughs> the point of the scene right now isn't that I have a muffin top. The point of the scene should be this conversation with mm-hmm. Greg. Um, but later, let's totally do a song about muffin tops and we can show it all we want. Right. You know? Um. A dog just walked in. <laughs> it's true. Uh, the most adorable Cocker Spaniel? Uh, Cavalier King Charles Spaniel. Oh, Very close to Cocker Spaniel. Just a little fancy. What's your dog's name? Wendy. Hi, Wendy, come here. Wendy, come here. How involved were you in the casting process? I was very involved in the casting process. I was behind the table reading with the actors. I was very involved. I mm-hmm. learned so much about acting from it. Is Greg coming back? Um... I don't want to. I don't want to be definitive on anything. But but here's what I'll say: is we we wrapped up his arc. Um, his his arc is 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 wrapped up. That was always the intent of like his want song, which you could argue is what'll it be, mm-hmm. is all about. Hey, Wescovino, what are you doing to me? He blames Wescovino, blames Wescovino, and now he's left. He ultimately did need to leave. You know, it, it was the type of thing was he he needed to go somewhere else, and so. Um, I don't want to answer definitively, but I will say that like the main arc of his is, 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 is done. We, mm-hmm. we did, we made the point we wanted to make. Um, tragedy cycle says when you started writing crazy ex-girlfriend, did you intend for Daryl to be bisexual? It was so beautifully done. Now, when we first started writing it, it was around the time, uh, after we were like kind of in the, after we, filmed the pilot or like kind of in the middle of filming we were like okay so what's what's behind daryl's sadness there's something there and rather than just kind of make him the bumbling boss it was like okay well what's his deep 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 sadness that he's compensating for and a lot of times people have a deep sadness it has to do with like an unrealized part of their identity sexual identity and uh i think it was originally aline's idea to that he should be bi because she's like i know bi people and it they're seen as illegitimate even in the gay community people mm-hmm. you know people don't trust them they're like well you're not you're not bi you're gay right. and so uh but it was it was built in pretty early 
Um, is that, do you have a friendship in your life that the, your relationship with Paula is based on? Uh, yeah, me and Aline. I, as, as we started to, the, the, the idea for Paula is not based on Aline. Like Paula is not based on Aline. Um, that was kind of a different character idea. That was like a mix of people Aline and I had met, but the dynamic, this idea of a, of a, a younger woman's friendship with an older woman, um, it's, it's our, it's somewhat our relationship. Mm-hmm. Obviously, major differences, but that idea of young, of younger women and, and a younger woman and an older woman being kind of joined at the hip and helping each other is, is, um, uh, Rebecca calls Paula mama a couple times and like, I, I will call lean mama sometimes. <laughs> do you have a favorite? Just like, as a, like, I don't actually think she's my mom, but I'll be like, hi mama, you know? <laughs> yeah. Do you have a favorite song or favorite video or favorite scene from the show? Oof. They're all my children. Um, Settle for Me was one of those songs where it was like, we knew we wanted to do that during the pilot. Something where like a fucked up Fred and Ginger number. I'd been wanting to do that number, a number like that for years. Um, I love the math of love triangles Mm. from this season. There's a song coming up in the Patti LuPone episode that's very, very, very close to my heart about uh, Judaism um, I mean, there are so many, I could point to you every song and be like, here's why that song's my favorite. Um, I mean, I love, God, I love my daughter and not in a creepy way. That's just a great song. <laughs> so many good songs. Is there one that stands out as the hardest to film? Oh, hardest to film. Well, I wasn't on set for when we filmed I Could If I Wanted To, but that is in one take. So uh, that is, whenever you're doing something in what's called a oneer, that puts a lot of pressure on, you know, both the guy operating Steadicam and the actor and the director. Uh, I'm going through, I'm literally going through everything right now. Uh. There's a number coming up. There's a big, I have a big dance number coming up in a couple of, of episodes that it's not like something, and, and this is more just from a personal acting standpoint. It wasn't something that like I could learn the choreography from the day before. It is a an intense lyrical dance number, the likes of which I haven't done since like college. And mm. so I got to work early a bunch of days and learn the choreography for that number. And that was really, that was a, a dance challenge for me. And then, I'm trying to think of one more example of something that was really hard to film that I know for a fact was hard to film. <laughs> um, God, so much. I mean, there's, there's, there's challenges in... There's challenges in everything, but what really helps us is storyboarding. So, you know what? The Music Man number from episode 12 of the first season was hard because... Uh, we could only have so many background people. Is that when she was rounding up people for the case? Cold showers. That was yeah. hard because we could only have so many background. Like ideally the pool would have been surrounded by people. But we didn't have enough people. We were losing the light. So the seat, the take where I jump onto the raft, uh, we, we were losing the light. So like we had one take to get that. Mm-hmm. Literally one take. Um, and anytime when you're like shooting something outdoors with choreography, uh, you know, you're fighting the light, you're fighting atmospheric stuff, you're fighting everyone knowing the choreography. So that one was was also hard. Right. When you were casting, 
did you only reach out to people that you knew were strong singers and dancers? No, we reached out to everyone. We really lucked out. I mean, I will say the people that we have cast in the show, if they were not able to sing a note, they would have gotten their roles. They, they, they were unbelievable and the singing and everything else was a bonus. Mm-hmm. Was there one character that was the hardest to cast? We could have cast Paula. I mean, Donalyn is amazing and, and perfect for what we wanted, but there are so many talented women in their 40s and 50s who auditioned for Paula. Whatever, I, I, I definitely want to write something with a bunch of women in their 40s or 50s because mm-hmm. they are so talented and so underutilized. Yeah. Let's do Just Me or Everyone. But first, I need to talk to you guys about Blue Apron. Blue Apron are uh, so, it's so amazing. And I wish this had existed a long time ago when I was like, I would like to cook a delicious, fresh meal at home. But first, I got to pull out a recipe and then go to the grocery store and then buy all the ingredients and then bring it all home and then measure out everything. And by that point, you're tired. Blue Apron takes all the guesswork, all the hard work out of it because what they do is they send you everything you need um, already proportioned fresh, delicious ingredients, everything you need to make a delicious home-cooked meal, and then they include the recipe as well. And you're going to want to save these recipe cards because you're going to want to make them again in the future. Um, and they break it down to whether you're like a gourmet chef or just a novice um, who likes to be in the kitchen. Even if you're a novice who doesn't like to be in the kitchen, this will turn you around. Um, there's a bunch of pictures. They make it all very easy. Uh, but you will cook impressive, delicious meals. And it's affordable for less than $10 per meal. Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-proportioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. I think I said home cooked, but what I meant was home cooked. Uh, and there's a lot of variety, so you can choose from a variety of new recipes each week or let Blue Apron's culinary team surprise you. Recipes are not repeated within a year, so you'll never get bored. It's flexible. You can customize your recipes each week based on your preferences, several different delivery options, no weekly commitment. You only get deliveries when you want them. It's easy step-by-step instructions, uh, and the meals can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. And Blue Apron's freshness guarantee promises that every ingredient in your delivery arrives ready to cook or they'll make it right. So check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash Allison, blueapron.com slash Allison. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash Allison, A-L-I-S-O-N. So blueapron.com slash Allison, Blue Apron, a better way to cook. All right, let's do Just Me or Everyone. Sometimes I ponder on something I have thought or done. Is it just me or everyone? Okay, this is where people write in with things they think or they do, and they wonder, is it just me or is it everyone? Oh, and I we love weigh that. In. Great. Um, Doria says, every time I send myself an email to remind myself of something, the notification on my phone is still a surprise. I don't have notifications set up on my phone. However, I do still have that like Pavlovian response to oh, seeing an email come in. I'll text myself. Um, sometimes if I haven't synced my phone... I'll text myself like pictures to share on Instagram of the show. And like, I know it's coming, but I hear like the ding and I'm like, oh, it's not just you. 
Uh, Kurt Milner says, in a restaurant, ask for the dessert menu, even when I'm full, just to see the possibilities life has to offer. Absolutely. Yes. That is not just you, my yeah. friend. Uh, Jay Caravan, heating fish in the microwave should be a criminal offense. I wonder if that's like a work microwave situation. I, I get what I she's know. saying. Oh, like that. It just, that just her? a real fish smell. Yeah, it's a problem. Yeah. Um, I once had my landlord call me because people in the building were complaining that there was fish smell in all of the units. Oh. And I had to say, it's not me. It's not me. It's the guy down the hall. <laughs> what was it? The guy down the hall? Fish. He was making fish. Oh, it was him. Okay. Yeah, you, was weren't, him. you weren't lying. It wasn't me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I've been known to make cauliflower or broccoli in the microwave and that really oh really i did that a couple times at robot chicken smells. and people were very upset yeah yeah um jmos for a rose says get mad anytime i see someone close a ziploc bag without pushing all the air out no, i think i've I, done that i i'm not i'm not no, gonna I, get in the air out oh is that what you're supposed to do apparently jeff i is de- that i definitely don't get mad is about that the it. point of a ziploc bag for some are you people. supposed to like create a vacuum really i thought the point was like keeping out new uh, oh oh god no I don't, I don't look i refuse to believe sorry i'm like having like um a kind of uh a uh, usual suspects like flashback yeah. to all of the times <laughs> that i've contaminated month, my food yeah a vignette of uh of air-filled bags i refuse to believe we've all been doing it wrong all this time however i have seen people push air out i think it's i We'll, we'll Google uh, this after. We need to find out more, yeah. yeah. The only time I get fussy about it is if it's a freezer bag. If it's something that I'm, it's a chicken something and I'm freezing it, then I'll kind of squeeze the air out. Oh, otherwise, yeah, that's a good point. Otherwise, it's not a big deal, I don't think. Heidi says, peeing and have to sneeze, ball up toilet paper, blow nose, fold snot inside, wipe with said toilet paper. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And by the way, here's a real big TMI, but um, throughout most of pregnancy, I've had not like a full-on bloody nose, but a little, there's just more, there's just more blood coming out of my nose. I don't know what that is. I think it's hormones. So that creates interesting moments where I'm like, oh, then I'll wipe and I'll think, oh no, where's that blood coming from? <laughs> yep. But it's always just coming from my face. Okay. Um, the wiping thing is weird because guys don't have that with their, I mean, they have it with their butts, but like <laughs> every time you wipe as a woman, it's always like a little check-in yes. with your vagina to be like, what's, should, the, what colors are happening on the toilet paper today? Right. And usually it's like clear or, you know, slightly, you know, from pee-pee, mm-hmm. but like, it's always a little, um, cause we don't look at our guys, like look at their penises when they pee, I, I think, cause it's like right there, but like we don't look at our vaginas every day. So like wiping is kind of the only way to like do a little check-in. Right. Exactly. Yeah, to split hair, I don't know if I don't know if guys look at their. But you wings. can easily see your penis. It's in the periphery. Yeah, like you can you, if like anytime you want. It's in the. You frame. can look down and look at your penis. Yeah, I can't. Which is I have to take down my pants and like sit spread eagle in front of a mirror if something is happening right with my vagina. And there needs to be the right light as well to see because like my just to make it look good. <laughs> I need soft. You have a beauty light. There's well, there's one side of my vagina that's lopsided that like no one else notices. But <laughs> balanced daylight. No, you don't want any I'm tungsten s- light in there. All I'm saying is, if you're trying to explore something and there's not good light, that can be a very frustrating experience. Wendy, Wendy. agrees. Wendy, to- Wendy totally agrees. By the way, my side note is uh, my friend Danny, who plays George on Crazy Ex Girlfriend. Uh, side note: uh, has, has dog sat for me quite a lot. He grew up with dogs, and he's like, he loves my dog Wiley so much, but he's like Rachel. 
I love Wiley so much. Your dog licks her vagina more than any dog I've ever seen in my life. And I was like, she's her, she's her mother's dog. <laughs> That's very sweet. And lastly, I don't lick my dog's vagina. That's not what I'm, I'm you get it. I'm no, saying. we know what you're oh, saying. You okay. lick your own vagina. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. <laughs> Casino dad says, have to, have to sp- <laughs> get out of the casino and be with your children. That's right. Wendy, Wendy. Oh, you have a silly fucking face. She has a lopsided face. She does. Oh my God, you're so silly. Wendy, stop being so silly. (laughs) All right. Casino dad says, have to split up mouthfuls of food to have equal amounts on each side. Hashtag symmetry. No. Oh my God. I I tend to chew. I tend to chew mostly on one side. I don't know why. No, I'll do that. I'll like swish stuff around my mouth. I hadn't realized that until right now. Now you know. I do that. Rachel Bloom, yeah. it was so delightful having you on. Thank you so, 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 so much. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, audience. <laughs> uh, follow me on Twitter at Allison Rosen. Follow the show's Twitter feed at A-R-I-Y-M-B-F. Jeff, where should we go for you? You can find me on Facebook and Twitter at Colonel Jeff Fox. Okay. And tell everyone where they can find you and plug all the things. Sure. You can find me on Twitter at, at Rachel Does Stuff. Also Instagram at Rachel Does Stuff. I'm on Facebook. I have a show called Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. It's on the CW Fridays at 9. Thank you so much. Listeners, thank you for listening. I love you guys. Goodbye. Bye. Hey, do you know about the Allison Rosen Show? We had a good time, but now we gotta go. Rosen is your new best friend